Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah chapter 12? And we want to begin our reading today in verse 27. And we're really coming to the end of this series of messages that we've done in Nehemiah. We start off talking about how that starting over begins with grief. We're going to come today that starting over ends with celebration. We're really kind of going full circle. And I think that celebration is something that everyone enjoys, but quite honestly, it's something that very few people experience with any regularity. In fact, I would say that some of us would say, there's not a lot of celebration in my life. There are these moments where they're kind of, not celebrations, they're distractions. But really, really feeling that deep sense of unexpressible joy is an odd experience for most people. But let's begin by reading the text in verse 27, chapter 12. It says, don't mind, would you stand with Roy as he... (laughs) Roy knows the drill. (laughs) Uh, Even better than I do. (laughs) It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with the songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were also brought together from the regions around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites and Beth Gaal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on the top of the wall, and I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right, or literally in Hebrew that means to the north, toward the dung gate, and Hoshiah, the half-leaders of Judah, followed him, followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, uh, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as the priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Matniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, um, Mililiah, Giliah, Maiah, Nataiah, excuse me, I got carried away there. And with musical instruments and diverse tongues, prescribed by David, the man of God, Ezra the scribe, the, who led the procession. And at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the, to the wall and passed above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction, and I followed them on the top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens on the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the Yeshina gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred, as well as far as the sheep gate. And at the gate, the guards of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs gave thanks and then took their places in the house of God. And so did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniam, and uh, Micaiah, Elionie, uh, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with their trumpets, also Measiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Utai, Yohanan, Malchiah, Elam, and Ezer. And the choirs sang under the direction of Zechariah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we reflect on this passage of Scripture, as we come to the end of this series of studies, that your Holy Spirit would allow it to be a capstone on the things that we have learned and that you've spoken into our lives. Many of us can testify, Lord, that you have used these studies in our lives in powerful ways, and we pray, God, that you would finish that work in us as you carry it forward today, that we might know the fullness of your will and purpose for our life in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
In the world of science, there are really two ways of looking at reality or the physical universe that we live in. One is called uniformitarianism, and it basically says that everything is continuing to go on just the way it has always gone on, that tomorrow is going to be just like yesterday, and, and the day after that will be like the day after that, and on on infinity, that nothing changes, everything is just basically uniformly moving forward. The other side is what we would call creationism or some call catastrophism, that throughout human history there have been these great events that have transformed the world and made it into what we have. In other words, when God created by divine caveat and said, let there be light, from one perspective that's a catastrophic event because it takes the world as, as it existed and transformed it into something completely different. One of the things we have to ask, though, as we look at the world that we live in, is what was God's intent when He created it? Because when we look around the world, what we see, if the uniformitarian view is right, that as Tennyson said, the world is red with tooth and claw. In other words, it's, it's dog-eat-dog, dog. it's man against man, it's men competing and striving and the survival of the fittest determines who is the winner and so forth and so on. And when you look at the world like that, you begin to realize that this is a, a pretty destructive and deadly place. When whether we talk about, you know, 60 million abortions in our country alone since 1973, or I think about watching a special on Joseph Stalin yesterday where by his own hand, he personally gave the order to execute over 40,000 people, maybe as many as 30 million died under his pogroms and his striking out against the world. He was one of the world's true psychopaths and most destructive people. When you look at those kind of things, you sit back and say, does God support that? And if there is a God, why would he allow that? But if you even bring it down to a more personal level, how often can you say that your life is joyous? How often is your life sad? And which is God's will? Is God's will that your life be characterized by sadness, by disappointment, by disillusionment, by loss? Because it seems to be able to fill the corners of your life pretty easily, often without expectation and certainly without invitation. Or is God's goal for our life that we live a state of constant joyfulness? Well, it's interesting because when we look at God's original intention, when He created the heavens and the earth, it appears that His goal was that our world would be a place of joy. In Genesis 1.27, He says, God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, and He says to them, be fruitful and increase. He said He made everything that He made was very good. Seven times He said that what He made was good. There was no sin, there was no disease, there was no death, there was no want. All the things that we think are inherent to our existence did not necessarily exist. That's why men have universally and historically craved for that utopia out there, that, that nirvana that would come someday in their life, some way that we could conquer over the problems of humanity and we could all live in peace, and that even though over the last four decades we have spent multiple trillions of dollars seeking to lift people out of poverty worldwide, the number of people 40 years ago in poverty uh, in, de in debased poverty was about 2 billion. Today, after trillions of dollars, the number is 2 billion. And we looked at that and saying, is this what God has ordained? Is this what He wants? Is life in general supposed to be just sad? Or did God really plan it to be joyful? Well, part of the answer comes when we look at what the Bible tells us went, went, what went wrong in fact, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7.29, he said, God created people to be upright, but they have each turned to follow their own downward path. In other words, he says, God's plan is that there be joy in your life, but the sadness that there is really something that you've brought upon yourself to a large degree. Maybe not personally, but it's been done to you. But one way or another, sadness becomes more of a characteristic of human existence. In fact, when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, they did it consciously, they did it willingly, they did it intentionally. 
They literally rebelled against God. They knew the good that they were supposed to do, Paul said, and they did not do it. They did just the opposite. And with that came somewhat of a cavalcade of negatives into their life. Because he told them in chapter 3, 17, he said, I will greatly increase your pains. In other words, because of their actions, suffering was going to become part of their life. He says, your desire will be to your husband, speaking to Eve, and he will rule over you. There's a kind of injustice and oppression that would follow sinfulness into their lives. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, there's a certain futility in all of our labors because there's always opposition. I mean, one of the things that you discover was that tomatoes will grow and deer will eat them. I mean, there's talking about, for me at least, the ultimate futility. Why plant flowers? You know, I know where they're going to go. I know, go out and spray that stinky stuff on them. I forget. Anyway, he goes on to say, through painful toil, having to go out day after day and spray that stinky stuff, you will eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, there's an exhaustion that's going to be part of your life. And says, so God banished him, literally separated from God, and as a consequence, becoming separated with other people. That estrangement, relational estrangement becomes part of the human experience. And then finally he says, and until you return to the ground... Since from it you were taken, and for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And the end of the list is death. Suffering, oppression, futility, exhaustion, separation, and death. Now, I know some of you guys are going, I thought this was going to be about celebration and joy. (laughs) Well, here's the problem, isn't it? This is what we all know are the common characteristics of life upon earth. Not the totality of our experience, but we know that we never escape them. And here's some bad news for those of you who are younger. The older they get, the more you get to taste of this stuff. The older you get, the more you're going to experience the effects of sin in our world. For Adam and Eve, in an instant, their idyllic world changed from one of constant joy to a place of frequent sorrow. So much so that Job would later characterize it by saying, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. This was going to be the new rule of existence. Few days, lots of trouble. Even Peter writing to the church, remember what he said? Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. I mean, we just understand when you buy a new car, it's not going to stay new forever. That slowly it's going to decay, just like that character you run into in the mirror every morning. But so is it now, therefore, from this point on, God's intent that we go through life constantly muttering along with Solomon who said, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. He must have been a fun guy to hang out with, right? (laughs) Or is Chuck Swindoll right when he writes, life is meant to be enjoyed, not merely endured? I mean, after all, it was Jesus who said, You will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow so that you may have the full measure of my joy within. So which is it? Is life meant to be meaningless, meaningless, or is it meant to be filled with joy? And if it's true that it's supposed to be joy-filled, why is it that so few of us can say that we have joy in our life? Really, I mean, honestly. How, why are there so few of us who can say that we go through life feeling like it truly is a celebration of the life that we have in Christ? Most of us are, you know, the song that we sing is, Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. You know, and nobody will let you sing in their band either, but the point is, That tends to be our characterization. Well, in part, I think it's because of the pain and suffering that you and I do see and even experience on our own that's kind of all around us. I mean, I just think about my last week, and I I just, it's, it's a constant flow of information of broken marriages and broken relationships, people, broken health, 
disasters, financial problems, things that are coming into people's lives, you realize there's just a ton of hardship and suffering that's all around us. And especially in this information age with its 24-hour news cycles, we cannot help but escape the reports of death and destruction and Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> as Solomon again said, there is a time to tear down, a time to weep, and a time to mourn, and we know that. We know that bad news travels much more quickly than good news ever does. And it's easy for us to forget that there's more to it, that Solomon also said there is a time to build, there is a time to laugh, and there is a time to dance. But what sin has done is it turns joy into something that has to be pursued. It is no longer a given. What I mean by that is that Adam and Eve never had to wake up in the morning and say, what can we do to have fun today? What can we do to put a smile on our face? What can we do to be happy? They woke up and everything was there. They were at peace. They didn't have to accomplish anything. They had everything. They didn't have to prove everything, anything. They possessed all things. They were really complete. But when sin came in, what came with it was this nagging constant sense of incompletion. The sense that we have to negotiate every moment of the rest of our lives just to get ahead or even to stay even or even worse, to keep from falling behind. What sin did was it turned joy into a pursuit so that when our founding fathers just begin to lay out the statement of our independence, they say, we declare that all men are created equal. And that in that equality is the right to pursue happiness, but without any kind of guarantee that you'll ever have it. The celebration for you and I is not a way of life. It is something that happens occasionally. It's something that we may try to develop. But have you ever known that so often the plans that are so carefully laid don't turn out to be the ones that you really envisioned? It's interesting that knowing these dynamics, God actually commanded Israel. He institutionalized celebration into their culture. Seven times a year they were commanded, he said, to celebrate a festival to the Lord. And what is the festival? Literally, we could translate it, have a big party. The feasts of the Lord, we often think of them as being these austere moments where people would stand for hours staring at the altar and crying and weeping and repenting. There was one feast, the Day of Atonement, in which they did that. They fasted and they prayed and they weeped and they confessed their sins. It was one feast, it lasted one day, and that was it. The other feast lasted over a week, and it was food, drink, party, fun, singing, dancing, celebrating, as we often say in the Christian context, fun, food, and fellowship. It was an idea that you come together on this regular basis for one simple purpose, and that was to celebrate what God has done for you, beginning with the fact that He has forgiven them through the Day of Atonement from their sins, that He had given them a new beginning, a fresh start. And it's interesting, even in this passage where we find that they are celebrating the dedication of the wall, it uses eight times it says they were singing. Three times it speaks about music, all kinds of instruments. It talks about seven times that they were rejoicing and six times they were giving thanks to God for all that he had done. Because on these occasions, and especially these special occasions, they are commanded by Nehemiah, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, the very intention of these festivals was to create an atmosphere of joyousness because God knew that they would accomplish more when they were joyful than they would ever accomplish by simply being dutiful. And that's really where the rub comes many times. We think that all that God's interested in is us being dutiful. But the point is, God actually says, if you rightly understand me, you would be joyful. 
And when we're not joyful, it's because we don't rightly understand him. So as we look at this story, when it comes to the idea of celebrating, most people fall into one of two camps, at least in their efforts to celebrate. You have what I call the obsessive worker, the person who never really celebrates because work itself to them is their celebration. It's getting ahead, it's keeping up. As I was out, uh, you know, weeding my flower beds in my front yard the other day, one of my neighbors who uh, was walking by, you know, um, made the comment, he said, you know, busy hands, happy hands. And in my smart aleck response, I said, I'll trade you places. <laughs> I mean, it's like, this is, I'm not having joy right now. It's hot and I hate weeds. And so the whole point is that why am I doing this? Well, you know, I grew up in a home where I was told the idle hands is a devil's workshop. And my parents believed that with all their heart because when my hands weren't busy, they knew the devil was at work. So it was just, you know, it was this thing that's ingrained in you. And to be able to sit down and do nothing, absolutely nothing, was almost impossible. But there's a lot of people who keep busy constantly. They're obsessive in their work. We call it workaholism, as if it's something that they drank on the way out called coffee, and it made them do this. But the simple fact is there's a deeper drive inside of them that says, I have to keep going. I can't rest. I can't stop, because to stop is to fall behind and lose out on the race of life. And then you have on the other side what I call the obsessive partier. Um, they're trying to always celebrate. They party hardy. They, they understand the Epicurean motto that Paul quotes in the 1 Corinthians 15 where it said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, it's all about hedonistic pleasure. I need to experience whatever pleasure I can to fill up the moments because that's all that life is. You go around once, you get as much fun out of it, and then it's over, and so you might as well get your licks in while you can. But you see, both these extreme positions miss the same point. Neither one, in fact, is any kind of a celebration at all. Rather, it, it's a pursuit of distraction. And I find this characterizes the, the American way of life. When, when, and when Solomon was decrying people who abuse substances, he says their motive is to forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So the purpose of distraction isn't to make me joyful or happy. It's to keep me from thinking about how I feel when I'm not distracted. So that even though a video game, and as we'll soon be entering into the area of really available virtual reality, people will be able to hopefully escape any thought of the mundane, profane way that they're living their life. And all the time they stop living at all, especially as God designed it to be lived. You see, what people are missing is that true celebration is about one thing, and that's being thankful. In fact, the very definition of the word celebration is a joyous expression of thanks. The great condemnation in Romans 1, when Paul talks about men who have turned from God, says, because they were not thankful. In other words, we begin to feel that we have an entitlement to certain things. We're not thankful for what we have. Now, it's, it's kind of cliche to talk about travel around the world and see how other people live, and you'll be thankful to be living in America. But, and I don't want to be cliche. Let me just simply say this. Travel around the world and see how other people live, and you'll be thankful to live in America. And it's true, but how thankful are we? We're the most insecure, worried people on the planet. And yet we have less reason to be so than anybody else on the planet. And how much time do we spend really thanking God? How many times do we sit down at a meal and rather than just praying dutifully, Lord, bless this food, that we really get on our face and say, God, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, some of you I know have done this. You've been hungry. You've had the empty refrigerator, the empty cabinet. You understand what that is. And you really do say, God, thank you, because I know that this is a gift from you. I know this is an expression of your faithfulness, your kindness to me. But most of the time, we don't. We don't approach life with an attitude of thankfulness, but rather we 
approach life with an attitude of entitlement. How dare they do that to me? How dare they not provide me with that? How dare they not think of me first? How dare they not invite me? You see, when we look at this story of Israel in chapter in the book of Nehemiah, what we find is that this is a thankful people. Not initially, but in the end, they're thankful. They're thankful to God for a lot of things. Thankful first and foremost for the opportunity that he'd given to them. In chapter 2, verse 8, we find Nehemiah says, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. In other words, Nehemiah didn't say, well, you know, I kind of put together a plan, I kind of worked it a bit, and then when I got my chance, I made my sales pitch to the king, and the king bought it, signed off on it. Man, I'm good. Man, I'm clever. No, he says, you know, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed because I knew I was asking the king to do something that he'd already said no to. To a king who lives under a legal system that says, once you make a law, you can't change the law. So if you said no once, that settles it. Don't bring it up again. Unless, of course, you want to take a vacation from your, head, your torso. So, God, give me grace. And he goes in and presents it to the king. And the king says, hey, no problem. What do you need? He hands him a list, a long list, an expensive list. And the king goes, okay, 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 okay. What's his response? God, you just did something here. This was not made of man. God did this. He gives God the glory for it because the opportunity to even do what he was going to do had to come from God. It wasn't humanly possible. You wonder why sometimes God brings you into impossible situations and then pushes you forward. It's because he wants to show you that he is the one who provides opportunity. I know, you hate God working that way. I know, me too. I don't... I don't, don't don't get me, let me get sick to prove to me that you can heal me. <laughs> don't, don't put me in a situation where I have to talk to a group of people just so you can prove that you can speak through me as you have through other donkeys throughout history. Don't, don't put me in this situation, God. Don't make me do that. And yet that's exactly where God says, you don't understand, I create the opportunity. And he says from the very beginning of creation, this, everything was dark and lifeless. And God said, let there be light. And light and life suddenly burst out. God created the opportunity for you to be sucking air right now. And there should be an inherent thankfulness. The great sin was because they were not thankful, God gave them up to the vain imaginations of their minds. And the biggest vanity was to think that they were God. But secondly, they gave God thanks because he gave them the strength to accomplish the opportunity. They endured hardships. They were able to actually complete the wall. I know some of us would look at it and say, well, but their hands are the ones that had the calluses in it. Yes, their hands were the ones that had calluses in them. But four times, Nehemiah says, the gracious hand of my God was upon us recognizing over and over again, which kind of explains why, as at every juncture, Nehemiah turns to God in prayer because he understood what Solomon was saying when Solomon said in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen guard it in vain. He realized, unless, Lord, you build this wall, all of our building will come to nothing. You have to build with us. You have to become the mortar that holds all of it together. And when they step back and see this completed wall, that it is not a mean wall, it is not anything simple, but it is a massive, strong structure, he can just sit back and say, God, thank you. We, we didn't do this, you did this. The very fact that you get that many people to work together is a miracle of grace. But also they were thankful because he had given them back their self-respect. Their shame had been lifted, their reproach had been removed. So that their celebration was a natural and a joyful expression of a thankful nation because he said God had given them great joy. Now here's the rub for many of us. We think that joy comes because God just simply steps in and goes, here, have some joy. Force feed joy into my life, Lord. Make me joyful, Lord. 
And then you sit there and complain about you not being joyful. Don't you get that? You unthankfully complain that you're not having joy. But joy depends upon thankfulness. So that here's where it gets really bizarre. When you're going through a very painful, difficult time and you say, God, I thank you for this painful, difficult time in my life because I know the end result is going to be greater joy. Prayed that much? Ever? <laughs> no, most of us end up in that place of complaining, what are you doing, God? If you love me, you wouldn't allow this to happen. And when are you going to fix this? Okay, you could do it for a little while, but that's all, just a little while, straighten this out. Send me angels, send me miracles, do this, do that. We have this list that we begin to run through. And God says, when are you going to stop and just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in me, what changes me. Oswald Chambers once said about prayer, he said, people say prayer changes things. He says, the truer statement is that prayer changes me and I go out and change things. God wants to change you so that you can be a change agent out there in the world. C.S. Lewis said, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. Here are two men, I think, who understood prayer. And the primary thing was that prayer changes me. That's really what's got to be fit. And what's the first thing that has to change in me is I need to have a thankful heart for what God is doing in my life. How many situations do you have in front of you? You'll have them today. Places where you're going to have to go, conversations you're going to have to be, family and friends and relatives that you're going to have to hang out with and all the rest of that stuff. And there's this thing inside of you going, oh, how can I just get out of this? And I'm just saying, you're not going to be a fun person to be with. No, what changes is that when I start saying, God, you know how much I don't want this and I don't like this and I'm struggling with this. God, I ask you to change my heart and make me thankful for the opportunity that you've given me today. The opportunity to lay my life down. The opportunity to die to myself. The opportunity to love somebody who has not been loving to me. The opportunity to really live out the life of Christ in my life in a true, measurable, real way. Thank you, Lord. I know, we're going to have to work on that, aren't we? But it only made sense that Nehemiah assigned two large choirs to give thanks. Literally, the Hebrew reads, thank choirs. That's their job description. What is our job description? Thank God. All your songs have to be about thanking God. Have you read the Psalms lately and how many of them are about thanking God for what He has done? The two choirs, full-time job, just singing in a way that thanks God for what He has done. He said to, do, to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals and harps and lyres. And he said, not just those of you who are the professionally trained singers, but it says the women and the children also rejoiced, so much so that the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Suddenly they became known as the people who rejoice. You know, there's a magnetism towards those kind of people. There's a magnetism towards people who, who rejoice. We see people who seem to be positive and energized and happy and thankful, and especially when they're going through difficult times, and we're just kind of drawn to that because there's something within our soul that yearns for that same kind of joyfulness. And yet we've convinced ourselves because of our circumstances, we are, it is impossible for us to be joyous. It's out of reach. And so we don't even pretend. But let me tell you, it's not a matter of faking it till you make it. It's a matter of sitting and saying, God, I am going to force myself to thank you for something that I don't even understand why you allowed this to happen. You see, the building of this wall had begun with great enthusiasm. But like most great projects, somewhere in the middle it gets long and it gets difficult and sometimes Deeply, no, all the time. It's deeply discouraging. I mean, we've talked about it for weeks. The external opposition 
that was determined and was intense and unrelenting. There was this internal divisions that had been exhausting, breeding discord, division, discouragement. Some people wanted to get up. Nehemiah told us, he said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble. We cannot rebuild this wall. I wonder where those people were at the end of the book. The people who were standing at the wall and going, oh yeah, I always knew we could do this. No, you didn't. You tried to convince us to stop. They worked on day and night, often literally with one hand tied behind their back, and they finished the entire project in, in, in a record time, which was no small accomplishment. A wall that was two and a half miles long when you go around the circumference. The walls were a minimum of 40 feet high, nine feet wide, they had eight gateways. They had 34 towers that they built above and beyond the walls. But probably the most notable consequence of everything that went, had, took place was when he said in chapter 6, verse 6, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done by the help of our God. Why does God put people in impossible situations? So that when he does a miracle, people will turn around saying, it had to be God. It had to be God. Their enemies go silent, even terrified, realizing, as Gamaliel said, we could be in danger here of fighting against God. But even more momentous, as I mentioned before, it had brought to an end 150 years of what Nehemiah's brother Hanani characterized as great trouble and disgrace. Judah's collective inferiority complex was suddenly healed. And for the first time in 150 years, it was now a time to laugh, a time to dance. So let me wrap this up by pointing the finger at you. <laughs> how do we find that path of celebration? I mean, how do we get there? You and I. And I think that Paul, in writing to the Philippians, offers a, a beautiful formula, especially for those of you who struggle with depression or just a, a real negative attitude. You always see the half-empty jar. You know, you, you're always the one who's always pointing out what's wrong and never seeing what's good. I mean, I'm not going to tell you who you are. Your spouse has already pointed that out many times. But, <laughs> but he does three things. And the first thing he does is he gives a command. Really, in fact, the, the mood in the, in the Greek grammar is what we call the imperative. It's the same as the imperative in English. It expresses a command to the listener to perform a certain action by the order and authority of the one who's giving the command. So in this place, we have Paul speaking by the Spirit of God, giving a command, and he says this in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, Rejoice. You know, it's, it may sound crazy, but it's almost like he's grabbing you by the lapel, pulling you real close, looking at your face and saying, smile. <laughs> rejoice. I don't feel like rejoicing. I didn't ask you what you felt like. I'm telling you to rejoice. You see, we don't think of that. We're waiting for the emotion to catch us up, the tsunami of happiness and good times to suddenly sweep us away, that we open the box and we won the publisher's clearinghouse, the guy standing there with the big check and the balloons. And we go, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then suddenly you go and accidentally buy a lottery ticket and you won. You won the big prize. And then suddenly, some guy comes up and says, you know, I have this Lamborghini. It's just clogging up my driveway. Would you take it from me? And you go, oh, praise God. You know, and this beautiful family walks up with a drop-dead wife. And she says, you know, I think I'm the family that you've lost. And you're going, I can't believe it. And I'm just rejoicing. So they say, well, that's why I'm happy. Until you find out that beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous trophy wife looks. She goes, oh, excuse me, you're the wrong guy. And the Lamborghini's stolen. 
And the sweepstake, well, all we're doing is actually selling you magazines. <laughs> and that lottery ticket, yeah, you won. You get $4.63. How do you want that? And then suddenly, pshh, because we allow the circumstances of our life to determine how we feel about everything. I do it, you do it. I do it. You know, it's like, it's like when you see a red light behind you as you're driving, you know. Somebody says, is that a bad sign? Is it ever a good sign? <laughs> you know, when that officer says, do you know how fast you are going? I think you seriously expect me to admit that? <laughs> You know, this, there's, no, there's no positive that's going to come out of this. And God says, I, no, I, I told you rejoice. Rejoice. Then when the doctor says, it is bad, we are going to have to operate and we can make no promises to rejoice. And I know that sounds cruel and unusual and crazy. Maybe to some of you it's magical mystery stuff and you know, it should be in a Harry Potter movie or something. But the truth of the matter is God says, here's my command to you, rejoice. And he commands me to do it because when God commands me to do something, he's already provided me with the means by which to do it. That God, I can already begin to say thank you for what you're doing. I, I rejoice in what you have in store. That I can't see it, I don't even know how to explain it, but I know, God, that you love me with such great depth and wonder and purpose that you are going to cause all this to work together for my good, and I glorify you in advance. Then he goes on talking, going from command to talking about attitude, and I refer to it, as many people do, an attitude of gratitude. And here's what he says in verse 6 and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Um, any of you guys struggle with worry? Okay, let me, let me should ask first. Any of you struggle with lying? <laughs> yeah, okay, we understand, right? Don't be anxious, okay, <laughs> about anything. God, these kids, they're going to grow up and they're going to be felons, I know. <laughs> They're four and they're lying and they're cheating and they're stealing. I, this is, I, don't be anxious about anything. But instead, by prayer and petition, and here's the key, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Have you ever noticed when you pray and ask God for stuff, if you're not thankful for what He has already done, you're questioning whether or not He's going to do the very thing you're asking Him? This is why my little, my little process, when I start praying, I do this thing. I start saying, God, I want to start by thanking you, and I start thanking him for anything I can think of. And it's a lot of little cheesy stuff, you know. I thank you that I'm sitting in this nice, comfortable couch right now. I thank you that the weather's nice outside. I thank you for the rain. I thank you that, you know, my wife has not left me yet. I thank you. You, you start, you know, you just start thanking God for all of these things, as crazy as it sounds. Because when you begin to thank God, somehow you begin to get perspective. It's almost like you step back and say, look at everything that God has done. Look at everything He's got. Look at, I have a home, I have transportation, I have food on the table. I, uh, look what God has done. I have a couple people who sort of like me. I mean, I've, I, wow. And it changes your heart. And it makes you more confidence because he says, then as you present your request with God, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. In other words, people are going to say, why are you so relaxed? You should be worried. You're thinking, I don't know. Doesn't make any sense to me either, but I, 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 I just know God's got this. That peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He commands me to rejoice. He tells me, deal with the attitude. And then he says, but also put it into action. Put rejoicing into action. Well, how do we do that? I love this part. Finally, brothers, whether, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace 
will be with you. You know, just by virtue of my position, I'm a recipient of an amazing amount of information. <laughs> and I wonder sometimes when people report things to me, why are you telling me this? Why are you saying this to me? What, what's your motivation? Because we don't know if it's true. It doesn't feel good. There doesn't seem to be any nobility in it. It doesn't seem to, does, doesn't seem to have any positive uplift. And I'm not saying that we sit there and close our minds to all the negatives out there. But if you're open in your mind without kind of any kind of filtration of negatives, you will very quickly be overwhelmed by the negatives and you'll become one of those kind of paranoid, suspicious persons who's always going around trying to figure out how they knew you were coming this way. You know, you know what happens when you step on some gum and you say, how did they know? And you live life like that and you become dour and we, and we begin to become those people who look out in the world around us and we see what they're up to. You know, yeah, I know that. I know what that Hillary Clinton is up to. She's, I, she's got a 666 tattoo on her chest. I know it. I'm sure of it. It's in that secret server. <laughs> you know what I know about that dear woman? She doesn't know Jesus. She needs to know Jesus. And I should be praying for her soul. Because she doesn't know Jesus. We become the very thing that I think God doesn't want us to become. We become the very caricature of the culture that we live in when God says, I want you to be the most positive, upbeat, confident people on the planet, not because you're good or great or capable, but because you know that I am and you belong to me. Rejoice. That's a commandment. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because you know that he has done so much for you that your rejoicing is an expression of God. We just thank you so much for what you've done. Rejoice in that. And when it comes down to my own thought life, what I need to do is part of the acting upon that rejoicing, that thankfulness, is to purposely, consciously, and that's why I call it action, discipline my mind to think on the things that are wholesome and true and good. And not to spend all my time in front of the news uh, cycle absorbing all the bad news and the negativity and the opinions and the stuff that goes on. But I begin to spend that time in the Word of God, which tells me the truth. Because when people say, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, is that new? <laughs> I think that started in the garden. <laughs> you know, they had to make a basket for the world to go to hell in. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it, of course. But what I know, I, because maybe you haven't done this, I read the last chapter. We win. <laughs> and we win big. <laughs> right? And I may lose it all, but in the end I get it all. And believe it or not, Jesus wants us to take that perspective seriously and to allow it to work itself through our lives in a way that they can hear our rejoicing afar off. Father God, I pray for the work of your Spirit in our hearts and our minds. But don't let us think that their rejoicing was some historical landmark centuries ago that has no real connection to us today, Lord, because you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You're the same God who is giving us everyday opportunity. You're giving us strength to act upon those opportunities. You're giving us self-esteem, Lord, that you're removing our shame and our guilt and our reproach. As, we can, as fast as we can breathe it, Lord, you take it from us because you have paid the price. 
and that we can stand before you and we can lift our hands and lift our voices and celebrate. God, so thankful that you have loved me, so thankful that you've saved me, so thankful, Lord, that you are in control of my life and not the world or the circumstances around me. But God, I thank you that even in the painful, dark passages, you are with us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. As we close the service, we just want to invite you to worship. Lift your voices. I would say, let your joy be heard afar off. The scripture doesn't say that you need to have a great voice. Um, in fact, it's the term it uses, they made a great noise. And, that, you know, noise can be annoying sometimes, but um, there's just something when our spirit is freed enough from the encumbrances of life that we can just sing out of our hearts and let God know that we really mean it. That oftentimes the tears begin to follow and a depth of worship is experienced unlike anything we've ever felt before. There's a cleansing that goes on in our lives. Because when we partake of these elements, what we're really doing is objectively declaring His victory over the things that make our life miserable. His body given so that yours wouldn't have to be. His blood poured out so that your sins wouldn't be yours any longer. Shed to cleanse and wash you. And there, this is a moment of celebration. I, and I think sometimes we get it wrong. I see people come up and take the elements of communion and they're weeping and you say, why are you weeping? Oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. I, think, I feel like saying, I think you missed the message. We do it because he's forgiven your terrible sin. I don't disagree. You are a terrible sinner. I could smell your sin before you even got here. But be that as it may, he has washed you, he has cleansed you, he has removed that as far as the east is from the west. And we need to live in that reality and be thankful. God, I look at my life, these 65 years I've lived, and there are so many things. What would you do different? I would have started with a new path down the birth canal. I mean, there's... But it's not necessary because I have been forgiven. I have been redeemed. I have been saved. And that God did not create me for time. He created me for eternity. And so whatever foilings and fumblings and screw-ups you have in this present life, that's not the definition of who you are. That's not your destiny. Your destiny is one day to shed this carcass and get a new body and live and reign with him in eternity. That's what you're all about. That's where your victory is. Stop living in the sin and the failure of your past and start living in the present reality of his grace and his salvation so you can begin to thank him and celebrate that you've been saved. In Jesus' name, amen.